All right. Good evening. Uh, thanks for for being the the ones who showed up who aren't afraid to uh, listen to us talk for a really long time, unfettered. Um, appreciate that. Um, and thanks for anybody who's uh, watching online or listening on podcasts or anything like that in the hopefully not too distant future. Um, well, so this is the first of our Credo series uh, deep dives. And so what we're going to be doing uh, really is having a conversation. So we have a few questions that people have sent in over, over the last couple weeks, actually way more uh, really good ones that we'll even be able to scratch this. That was me, up. I'm sorry. What was that? <laughs> that, uh, uh, that was me, sorry. Oh, yeah. Um, and, and then also through the course of the night, if you have a question, uh, you can actually email ask at livingstreams.org, and a couple people are going to be fielding those to us, and uh, they'll probably keep me and Ryan posted on that. And uh, If I'm on my phone, it's, I'm not checking yeah. Twitter. I'm, I'm yeah, looking yeah. at the Yeah, we'll questions. be on our phones a bit, and it's not because we're checking. <laughs> probably out. not checking Twitter, yeah. Um, we may or may not get to those questions, but if you do have a question that comes up, feel free. Uh, even if you're watching on the live stream too, uh, feel free to email ask at livingstreams.org and it's possible we might squeeze that in tonight. Um, and if we don't, uh, we might see if we can maybe kick it down the road and possibly get to it uh, in a future uh, deep dive. So again, we'll be doing these every single week on Wednesday night, 7 to 8, 15 uh, for the next seven weeks. This is number one of seven. So. Mm -hmm. Uh, at least that's the plan uh, as, it, as it stands. So uh, tonight uh, we're going to talk a little bit about, about the last two topics, sermon topics. So I talked about the authority of scripture and then Ryan gave us just a really, it was originally the working title was We Believe, but um, <laughs> it was a lot more than that. Turned into more than that. Yeah, yeah. turned into postmodernism and some other <laughs> things like that uh, yeah. is, is really good. But, uh, but before we even dive into that, one of the things that I, I wanted to kind of set the stage with a little bit, uh, kind of give us some framework for, for the evening um, as we get ready to go into this conversation, we're going to be trying to answer some really hard questions um, that sometimes I think we avoid talking about because... The truth is we don't necessarily know. Um, we have intellectually, uh, and I would say emotionally and spiritually satisfying responses and answers to these, and, um, but we're not God, we didn't make the world. Um, and oftentimes I think people ask these really hard questions and you can, you can ask a question in a pretty concise way, but hard questions have hard answers. Um, and sometimes I think, you know, we, we went through the book of Job last summer and I love the book of Job. It's one of my favorite books in the, in the whole Bible. Um, and what's so interesting to me about the book of Job is it asks so many of those really, really hard questions. And then it seems to almost completely refuse to answer them. There's a response to those questions in the book of Job, but it doesn't really answer them. And, and I would say I think there are really good, satisfying answers to those questions. And I bet the author of Job had some answers to that. Uh, but there are some answers that when you write the answer down on paper, even if it's 100% accurate, it means nothing to you. It's not satisfying. There are some questions that in order to really answer them in a satisfying way, you have to wrestle with them. And so I think the book of Job intentionally leaves that tension in the air for you to say, look, you're going to have to wrestle with God if you want a satisfying answer to this question. There is a satisfying answer to this question. So tonight we're going to try to write down on paper some of what we think might be some of the answers to some of those hard questions. But I bet that doesn't mean very much uh, unless you really wrestle with God. Um, and so I'd really encourage anybody who is wrestling with these questions um, to actually wrestle with God. Uh, as you address these questions. And, and at the same time, to recognize there's a couple places where maybe uh, one of the four of us might have a slightly different perspective, might even disagree, uh, because, again, we don't really know. Um, we're just 
doing our best to follow the Lord and to figure out what's true and to listen to Jesus because we believe he is uh, the source of truth. Um, and so tonight, uh, primarily, uh, we want to talk about the authority of Scripture. Uh, I, there was a ton that we couldn't really dig into on Sunday. I tried to smush three or four sermons into one Sunday uh, this last Sunday. And so a couple of things that I, I think uh, maybe I'm hoping we can start off talking about even some of the stuff that we uh, or that I left hanging in the air. I'm, I'm wondering maybe if we can kick off talking about some of those other vari- variations in um, in some of the New Testament manuscripts. So yeah. it'd be pretty important to listen to the message on Sunday. To we should introduce Sunday. these two that are sitting Oh, yeah, too. that's a great idea. How about we introduce <laughs> these two? Yeah, because they are... Yeah, incredibly valuable. <laughs> Introduce part them of our to each other because they've yeah. never met before. So we have. Uh, so you're familiar with Ryan Romeo, uh, our associate pastor, who's been uh, taken to reins while David's been out of the country. Uh, Dan Riccio is a longtime member of uh, Living Streams. I remember when he was in the youth when I was a child, and he was a cool older teenage kid. Um, and Dan is one of the smartest human beings I know. He's also yes. one of our elders here at Living Streams. Uh, Dan is the person that um, if I'm hanging out at a party and I sit down and talk to Dan, uh, guaranteed our wives will be elbowing us an hour and a half after everybody else has left <laughs> to say, guys, it's time to go. Um, and Faith Cummings, uh, I think a lot of you know Faith Cummings. Uh, she's our women's pastor. She's a master's in divinity, is that right? Um, and she's also one of the smartest human beings I know. Um, and, and for for Faith, one of the things that really stands out is that it's not only that she's a really intelligent person, uh, but she's someone who's walked through a lot with the Lord. Um, and so the conclusions that she has, uh, they're not just things that she thought through. Um, they are things that she wrestled through uh, 100%. So um, I don't know, Ryan, if you have anything to add about No, her. no. I don't know why I'm up here but with these guys. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, so I'm hoping maybe we can, uh, we'll, we'll kind of go ping pong around uh, however we do tonight, but uh, I'm thinking maybe we can start a little bit. I did bring up the conversation on Sunday of uh, these variations in the manuscript evidence uh, in the New Testament. I, uh, I think for some people that that's a really, uh, it can be disillusioning. I think that's something you might hear people say, oh, there are things that are, that are addressed, that are in the scripture, that are changes, that are different. And I, I think a lot of churches sometimes might be afraid to answer that. I think more, more so than that they're afraid of it. I think a lot of times we don't bring it up because it's a lot of work and you only have so much time on a Sunday to answer what really is a question that needs some wrestling. Um, and I think sometimes we've been passed down some things in our traditions that might be a little bit incorrect. Um, uh, one of the things I know we really wrestled with, uh, and actually maybe Dan, you can speak to this because I think you were in those conversations when when Living Streams wrote that phrase uh, or that that statement of, on the scripture. Um, it was very intentional the use of the word authoritative, as opposed to two other words that are really common, uh, inerrant um, and infallible. Um, I, I'm wondering if you could maybe speak a little bit to. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> um, <clears throat> so. One of the things I had thought just after Alex's sermon on Sunday is, you know, do we like things that are authoritative? And the answer is like, no, we want to run for those, from those things. And a lot of times it's like, do we want one more authority in our life? And it feels like, not really. And so even just to say the authority of Scripture is what we're under uh, can be kind of a, well, does that mean whoever has it is in charge of me and they can beat me up with it? And that's not what the authority of Scripture is. And really, the, you know, from the Protestant Reformation, Sola Scriptura came from that because the Catholic Church had traditionally held to 
okay, the authority of the church and the authority of Scripture, and they're supposed to work together. But over the centuries, it had gotten way out of line to where the traditions that were now what the church was being run by looked nothing like Scripture. And so for the Reformers to say, no, we're going to go by the authority of Scripture, was calling back to, like, yes, there is tradition. How do we know what the 66 books of the Bible are? It comes from tradition. There's not a Scripture that says... Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, you know, it's, it's from the tradition of the church that we've held on to those. So tradition matters, but it's not ousted um, by the authority of the church. And so the authority of the scripture is actually a very liberating thing. Um, you know, I think it was Martin Luther talking about wherever there's someone reading scripture on their own is kind of like a reformation going on wherever they're at because it's God moving through them that we don't have to go through the church to have access to God. So the authority of the scripture is actually really good news. Um, and so, because otherwise you're going, well, how can Ruth or Joshua be authoritative? They're stories. And um, what we take from the, you know, from the narrative long story is it was about Jesus, um, and it's leading to Jesus. And when Jesus, you know, before he ascends in the Great Commission says, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to the books you guys are going to write. It wasn't what he said. It was all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. But the books that the, you know, the followers of Jesus wrote gave witness to that testimony. And so, you know, his instruction was teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. And so that's what carries the authority. This is the witness to the authority of God. And so in that way, scripture becomes authoritative, not to beat you up with because, you know, we're not reinventing the Catholic church and going, we're gonna, you know, now it's the magisterium of the Protestant church where we tell you how to interpret scripture. Um, so that was just kind of one note on authority. Another is inerrancy and infallibility. Um, you know, I took classes at Fuller. In the very first class, I was introduced to why Fuller changed their stance from inerrant to infallible. And I remember reading those going, I can't tell the difference between these. And, you know, other people in the class kind of doing the same thing. And, um, and really where, you know, inerrancy comes from is a reaction to modernism where it's saying, we can put scripture under the same microscope we put any other text. And when you put gospel side by side or even Old Testament side by side that retell the same story, you're going to see differences. But those differences are on purpose. They usually have a very um, specific purpose why the authors wrote them the way they did. Um, and to try, you know, one reaction is, I can show you how those say the exact same thing, which I think is to miss letting the scriptures talk the way they do. Um, I, one of the ways I like to think of it is, what gives you more information, a photograph or a portrait? And if you kind of think about that, well, what can you do in a portrait? You can add some shading, you can do some things, you can emphasize some features if you're doing you know, a person's portrait, and you can actually put more information into a portrait than you can in a picture. And a lot of times what we get like in the Gospels would be portraits of Jesus. So it's not just, I mean, if the portrait looked nothing like the person, you'd go, that's not accurate. But it's, here's Jesus, but let me show you things about him embedded in how I'm showing it to you. And so I think using the term inerrant kind of goes, no, 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 we want to make them look all the same. 
Um, but infallible was a way of saying it's authoritative in everything it teaches in terms of faith and salvation and everything else as is a very short version of what you could say about and it. And shying away from that phrase doesn't mean that it's like, oh, there are errors that we're just trying to, you know, like, that's, that's, that's not what it is. It's adding a little bit more color and context to it. We still believe the, the Holy Spirit, it's inspired. We still believe that there's, there's something deeply beautiful about the Word of God. And we were talking about it downstairs as we were coming up here, just going, you know, all of us have spent a lot of time reading this Word. And even this morning, I was reading the book of Hosea, which you guys get some inside knowledge. We're going to do the book of Hosea this, uh, this, this summer. Um, but, but I've been deep diving into Hosea. And this morning, I've read that book many times. And all of a sudden this morning, I, I, I read something and I'm like, I've never seen that before. And the living and active nature of the Word of God is something that is really beautiful and really deep down in the belief system of living streams too. So, Yeah, I think for me, when we, when we choose to say, oh, we're not using the word errant, inerrant, like you said, isn't to say that we're saying, oh, it's errant. Uh, but, it is, but rather it's to say, well, where's the line that is of the utmost importance? Like the line that, that really is a hill we're gonna die on. Yeah. And I think what we're saying is the hill that we're gonna die on is the Bible is true authoritative, inspired by God. So there are lots of hairs to split when we're talking about these kind of things, you know, because there are, there are, there are places in the scripture uh, that are, it seems to be intentionally contradicting themselves. So for example, the book of Job, uh, one of the things that we talked about pretty thoroughly, we can unpack it a little bit because we talked about it so deeply in the, in the series of Job. The book of Job toggles between saying, well, God caused this suffering and Satan caused this suffering. The author who wrote the book of Job was a literary genius and probably a genius in every way, shape, and form and was inspired by God. Um, and so is that an error? Well, some people might split a hair and say that. I'd say absolutely not. I think it's very clearly intentional and purposeful. And when people just assume, well, the Bible has errors and it has mistakes in it, um, I think we miss out on really digging deep and finding out what was intentionally said there. It's almost like uh, almost like the Christian version of, of what you'll often hear um, atheists accusing uh, religious people of doing when they say, oh, the God of the gaps theory, right? When they say, well, you just assume that God is, you don't understand a thing, and you just say, well, God waved a magic wand, and it's done, and then you never understand, you never learn, you never pursue. Um, I think when people choose to say, well, the Bible has all these mistakes and errors and uh, isn't necessarily authoritative, and it's really just what people thought God was doing, I think you're essentially doing the, the exegetical equivalent of God of the gaps. You're just saying, ah, eh, that's too hard to think about. I'm just going to assume it was a mistake. And you miss out on the richness that you get when you dig into the fact that, no, actually, this was probably done very much on purpose. Um, and you, you begin to realize that the Bible is not afraid, for example, when you look at Job, the Bible's not afraid of our question when we say, well, is God responsible for all the bad things? Um, and, and I would say one of the things that I get from that is, well, God's not afraid of the fact that the circumstantial evidence at times uh, looks suspect because God knows he's innocent, uh, because God knows that he's good and he's pure and he's perfect. And so he's very willing to say, yeah, was it me? Was it Satan? Eh, we'll make that hard for you to figure out because uh, at the end of the day, I'm very confident. God's very confident that he's good. And when we have a relationship with God, that becomes relationally very evident. And so these hypothetical questions, and we look back on history and things like that, we, we start to say, ah, you know, I, I don't know, I can think of a hypothetical that makes 
make it makes it look really confusing whether or not God is good. But relationally, it's very crystal clear to me. And I think of a time when I was um, when I was a high schooler. I was a pretty good kid. I didn't really do anything super bad that I wasn't supposed to. But I remember my mom was a very wise mom, and she had a rule that you know as late as I would stay out because they let me stay out pretty late. Um, I always had to come in and give her a kiss uh, at the end of the night, mostly so she could smell me and make sure I wasn't doing something I shouldn't have been doing. Uh, and one night, I had been hanging out with some friends from work uh, at a bowling alley until like 1 or 2 a.m. And on my way to my car, I saw a big old, a giant 40, a big old can of beer in the parking lot, and I just kicked it, um, assuming it was empty and it was going to go flying, but it was, in fact, uh, full. Um, and so when I kicked it, it sprayed beer all over me. Um, and I came home reeking of cheap beer, um, and I gave my mom a kiss goodnight that night, and she said, why do you reek of beer? And I said, I, I kicked a can of beer in the parking lot. Um, and she had all the evidence in the world, teenager out till 2 a.m. with work friends who were older and drinking age, you know, smells like beer, but she knew me, and she knew my character. And so she said, okay, and that was it. Um, she trusted me because relationally, although there was evidence against me at that particular moment in time, she, her, her trust for me was, was greater than the evidence against me at the moment. Um, but so I wanted to get into the, uh, really some of those variations a little bit before we get too far. Um, I, I brought up a few of them, more of the significant ones. There's one I avoided on Sunday, not because I wanted to avoid it, but because it was a bit more work uh, that I, I just knew that it wasn't possible. But it's actually one of the ones that I think is um, scariest if you don't get into it. But again, when you really do get into it, it's very satisfying. Uh, but the end of Mark, um, I'm wondering if anybody uh, has dug into that a bit more. I did come prep to, to talk about that, if not, but uh, Dan or Faith or Ryan, I'm not sure if that's on your radar. But you want to talk about it, Daniel? Yeah, Mark oh, what, I, 9 I was just going to say, 20, or Mark 16, 9, 20. Um, I'm comfortable with that it was added later and it's never bothered me, so I don't spend any time yeah. on it. Well, I think the way that we were talking about it. So, you know, a lot of times you'll read, when you read scripture and you'll, you'll dive through it, and the book of Mark is one of those, you'll come across a footnote, and the deeper you dive into your Bible, you'll come across a footnote that says, earlier text didn't have this section in it. And so, even for me, before anybody threw that out at me, I would read that and go, hmm, interesting, okay. Uh, and as Alec and I were chatting about it, you know, you could see where that section was added later, and you could, you could go back and say some of the earlier texts did not have that section in it. Um, the satisfying answer for me is that section about Jesus' resurrection and everything else is fully explained in the other Gospels, which means to me, I'm going, Mark is not in, a, in any contradiction to any of those Gospels. Uh, and even if you take that section and you go, well, okay, it was added later, uh, it does not change at all or one bit. Uh, the fact that the other Gospels very much, and we've been talking a lot about this lately, very much back up the resurrection of Jesus, very much back up that there were a lot of people that knew that Jesus was resurrected. And even like Alec was talking about, the connotation even in the early writings were, here's the name of the person who saw Jesus, go and talk to him. Like there are live witnesses right now. So there is a deep confidence uh, in the resurrection of Jesus that is so uh, so thoroughly saturated in, in the other Gospels that when I read that footnote, I go, okay, well, it was added at a later time. I feel very similar to Daniel. It's like, that doesn't really, that doesn't really bother me, you know, so. I have no issue with it being added later either. The Greek is very different in that portion than it is in the rest of Mark. 
However, I think it's interesting that the person who added actually just pulled from other passages um, and everything that's written in that portion you will find elsewhere in the New Testament. Mm. So uh, whoever it was, was being careful to stick within what he actually saw happening in the early church. Yeah, and I think the way uh, someone would phrase it if they were really trying to pull you know, the rug out from under, under your faith would be to say, well, you know, Mark 16, 8 ends with, you know, and the woman saw the angel, and the angel said Jesus was erected, resurrected, but then there's no telling of the fact that they, like, we don't hear that they saw Jesus. Mm -hmm. And wow, isn't that a problem? And by the way, Mark was the, was the first gospel, the first of the four that was written, and so really the earliest one says, I, I, we, we, don't, we didn't see Jesus resurrected. Uh, but the thing is, uh, the thing I would add to what you all said, too, is actually Ryan talked about this not so long ago. In 1 Corinthians uh, 15, we have the earliest creed, um, which essentially affirms the resurrection. And, and as from what I was reading, most scholars would date that pretty dang early, like possibly within months of the resurrection. Um, but likely, at the very least, like very latest would be 80-40. Uh, but, but very well could have been uh, pretty shortly after Jesus was re resurrected. So we have the resurrection affir affirmed before the Gospel of Mark was even written, and the Gospel of Mark, even if it did end at, at, uh, at verse 8, which it probably did, um, doesn't conflict in any way, shape, or form with the resurrection. In fact, we have an angel declaring Jesus has been resurrected. Uh, so it's not quite as damning and as problematic uh, as people say it is for our theology. Again, like every other variation, it doesn't change our theology one bit. Yeah, yeah, it's good. Yeah. Um, well, yeah, I think one thing I'd love to hear Dan talk about a lot, here's a phrase, mm -hmm. we've, Ryan and I, we've said this a thousand times. Um, uh, we've, we've said, you know, one of the phrases that people should hear said in the church, uh, but we just really would have to take a whole Sunday or two to do it, maybe an event like, uh, like this, is the phrase, the editors of the Old Testament. Mm -hmm. um, so I talked about a little bit on, on Sunday. I said, I'm not going to dive into the Old Testament because it's a whole other thing. Um, but I'd love to hear maybe Dan or, or Faith, maybe you could uh, tell me what I'm talking about when I say the editors of the Old Testament and, and talk, to, talk to us about that a little bit. Nobody wants uh, to go first. <laughs> I don't mind, but you can start. Basically, oops. <laughs> Basically, um, we know that a number of the books of the Old Testament um, were written in portions and that they were put together um, by people later on. Um, one of the things that I find interesting, and I know that this, uh, I don't know if this is exactly have to do with what you are saying, but we have to remember that the Greek mindset, which is our mindset, is very chronologically based. The Hebrew mindset um, is more concerned about lessons. So in both the Old Testament and in the New Testament, you will at times see things put together in different orders, but they put them together in an order in order. I, I'm getting repetitive. They put them together in that order so that um, they can teach a specific lesson. So like in the book of Jeremiah, if you have an editor that's putting the different prophecies together, 
they'll be putting it together in a way that will teach a specific lesson. That's why you find Jeremiah going from Zedekiah back to Jehoiakim, which was an earlier king, and then back to, they're, they're scattered time-wise, but the truth is that they're putting it together for a lesson. I don't have an issue with editors uh, because I believe that what was written is God's word. And what I have more of an issue with, I'm going to be honest here, I have more of an issue with those that try to put together chronological um, Bibles, something that is put together for to show you the time. But it makes more sense to us, though, Faith. <laughs> but, but you miss... I'm just the, joking. Yeah. I know, I know, yes. But we miss the lesson that's being taught. Yeah. It, it, just like I also have a problem sometimes with the one-year Bible. Hmm. They'll take 10 verses of the psalm today, and then on another day, they'll have two of the other verses, and it's like we miss the lesson that's being taught. And I think that that's the whole thing about editing. Hopefully, those who were editing the Bible were also inspired. I believe that they were. Yes. And they're inspired in a way to bring to our attention things that we need to recognize out of what God was doing at the time. Yeah. Um, I guess an example that would really, I think, highlight and kind of be just another example of what Faith is saying is the book of Psalms. Like, you can see it big time in Psalms. In fact, um, I had a Hebrew teacher that told the story of someone that wanted Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, tattooed on his chest. So he found a Hebrew Bible, opened it up, went to the tattoo parlor. The first three words, I want those on my chest. And so... Um, He's at a party telling someone, like, hey, I got, I got this tattoo. And like, oh, really? Someone was saying, well, I'm taking Hebrew. Like, no way. Let me show it to you. Pulls off his shirt. And, a psalm to David. Like, <laughs> he didn't realize in the Hebrew text that thing that we see as an editorial note, a psalm to David or a psalm for David or a psalm of David. Um, that's actually in the text. <laughs> English translators have broken it out, and it's not part of the text. But those are the hand of an editor that are selecting and arranging and ordering the texts. And a really good example is like if you start at Psalm 1 and Psalm 2, like this runs all the way through Psalm. Um, th there's a stream of tradition in, you know, Israelite theology. There's, it's not like they all thought the same. And you kind of see within the scriptures, there's a sect that goes, how you live really matters. We've got to be faithful to Torah. And then there's the southern kingdom that goes, no, you know what really matters is we have a promise from God that we have a king who's going to sit on the throne forever and a temple in Zion. Those are the things that matter. And you open up Psalm, Psalm 1, blessed is the man who meditates on Torah. And it's all about how important that is. But then you go Psalm 2, and it's all about, I will proclaim the Lord's decree. He said to me, you are my son today. Uh, I've become your father. Ask me and I'll make the nations. And it's all about the promised king. And it's going, and, you know, that's installed on Zion. And so you have Psalm 1 and Psalm 2. And you kind of go, oh, okay. So back then people thought, some thought it's really important how you live. And others went, no, we're living by a promise. And that's all that matters. And then here's the psalmist putting them back to back. 
so that you wrestle with it. And then as believers in Jesus, there's some people that go, we're under grace right now. It doesn't matter how you live. And there's others that go, no, it really matters how you live right now. And then you go, oh, those Old Testament scriptures are really useful because that same thing we wrestle with now, they were wrestling with back then, but they put it together in such an order that you would continue to wrestle with it. And it doesn't stop there. Like, if you go through, there's all these connections that run through Psalms where they're doing that Psalm after Psalm after Psalm, and you see these threads and then these longer threads that run through whole groups of them, uh, and, it, and you start to go, wow, this is amazing. They selected it and arranged it for a reason. And I think the, the gotcha of, like, of maybe secular humanists would be like, ha, huh, it was edited. It was editors, you know. And just like Faith said, why couldn't they be inspired? I don't understand why that's any different than, you know, I think what we would imagine somebody sits down and they're just in a trance, Holy Spirit trance and writing. I actually think it's more beautiful and more miraculous that there is such consistency in a book that's put together from so many different places and so many different moments in history and so many different perspectives that is woven together in such a way that there are these these threads that run through the entire Bible, not just the Old Testament, but all the way through to, to the New Testament. And I find that beautiful. I don't find that a gotcha. I feel like that's a, we still believe that this book is divinely inspired. And the editors of the Old Testament are putting it together in a way that tells this beautiful story that is obviously still in line with uh, the gospel that fully comes into the New Testament. Um, but I think really, that God was even in those edits is so important too because uh, we love uh, Tim Mackey. I don't know if you guys know Tim Mackey, but he always talks about the threads that run through the Bible. And he goes, you know, you can, you can find a section of Scripture and he will take that one phrase that's used in this one book and he'll call back to all these different places throughout the Old Testament that it's used. And when you look at all of those in the different contexts of those words, it's beautiful. It creates this tapestry that I think is so much more interesting uh, than most people would give it credit. So when I hear the editors of the Old Testament, maybe, maybe College Ryan wrestled with that a little bit. Uh, but at this point, I go, I think it's beautiful. It's clearly inspired. Well, and we believe in Jesus, the Word of God made flesh, who was fully God and fully man. Um, how cool is it that at another level, we believe in, in, in the scriptures being a portion of the word of God. Um, that is, it is a full collaboration between God and mankind. Uh, that every word on that page was penned by a human being and every word on, that, on those pages uh, was penned by the inspiration of God. Um, so I think that's actually really beautiful and fitting and another level of, of that connection. The other thing is we only, we only miss the fact that that the Old Testament has editors by not paying close attention. Uh, the Old Testament admits it over and over and over again. Uh, you know, we have the, the Torah written by Moses and then Moses dies and the Torah continues. Um, so obviously some, someone did something there. Uh, you know, we have Jeremiah uh, admitting that, saying, oh, well, you wrote this down, then where did these other pages come from? We have the Psalms uh, doing that, like Dan said also, you know, there's a certain point in the Psalms where it says, here end the Psalms of David. And then quite a few psalms later, we have more psalms of David. Mm -hmm. um, so cl clearly someone said, well, let's take these psalms and these ones and we'll put them together in a book. That's, I mean, that's relatively obvious when you look at psalms that there was editing. The other thing that I think is really beautiful, and again, Tim Mackey does a really good job talking about this uh, in one of the courses that they have on the Bible Project. Uh, they have these free courses there. 
um, where he talks about the, the Tanakh, right? So the Old Testament is organized differently in the Hebrew Bible. Uh, it's the, the Torah, the Nevi'im, and the Ketuvim. Is that right, Dan? Um, and so the, there are these three chunks, basically the, the law, uh, the prophets, and the writing. Again, I, I'm looking to Dan because he's the <laughs> one who actually knows. And at the beginning and end of, of each of those three sections, uh, the editors of the New Testament, who we believe were, were inspired, stitched it together with what Tim Mackey would call hyperlinks, some of those threads, in some really beautiful ways, right? So, so the bookends of those uh, have some symbolism that calls back to, it, to each other. So if you look at, obviously, Genesis begins with the garden and all that, and if you look at Psalm 1, like Dan was talking about, we have this imagery, right, of the, of the man who meditates on the law of the Lord, and he's like a, a tree planted by streams of living water, and its leaf doesn't wither, right? So we're calling back to that imagery uh, that takes place um, in Genesis 1. And we have the same thing taking place uh, with, is it Joshua, right, that begins the, the Nevi'im? Right? Um, so we have, uh, oh, that's not, I didn't write that down there. Um, but we have similar thematic connection uh, with, oh, Joshua, that's right, in Joshua 1, 8, uh, Joshua's told, I think, to meditate on the law of the Lord day and evening, just like we're seeing in Psalm 1. So we have, uh, just with that, it actually happens in a number of other ways that the book ends there, but we have uh, the Torah, the Nevi'im, and the Ketuvim all stitched together thematically, um, even just with those first couple chapters of each of them. So clearly it's been edited in a really beautiful, inspired, connected, intricate way. I think one thing worth noting is, um, you know, there's the Hebrew division where they do, you know, Torah, prophets, writings. Um, we do like historical books, major prophets, minor prophets, uh, and neither is wrong, but there's something nice about each. One is um, like to read, so the prophets, Joshua, Judges, Ruth, like all of those um, are, you know, first and second Samuel, first and second Kings, that's part of the prophets. And what's different about considering those prophets like the Hebrew Bible does, as opposed to consider it historical books, um, like as you read through that, you'll see notes like, if as for all the acts of King so-and-so, are they not written in the annals of the kings of Israel? Go and read that if you just want the story of what happened. I'm telling you why it matters. And so what you get in the prophetic narrative of what they're calling the prophets, um, you know, it starts basically at creation and ends in exile. And uh, one description of it is worship at the judgment and justice of God. This is a story of how did I get here? And then the thing that's crazy is it starts all over at Adam again because you turn to Chronicles and you get a genealogy starting with Adam and it tells the story very differently. The, the, Kings, the Samuel King's narrative, it's all the sordid history. It's Bathsheba. It's Absalom. Uh, it is... Uh, Adonijah trying to usurp Solomon. It's messy, it's ugly, and it ends in exile. And then you start over and it tells the whitewashed version where there's no mention of Bathsheba other than she's Solomon's mother. Um, it tells a, tr a peaceful transfer of power. Um, it doesn't mention the northern tribes of Israel at all. And what you end up kind of getting is it tells the same story, but in very different ways. And it's instructive in terms of sometimes, you know, I've created messes in my life, and I've had to be able to tell my own story in such a way that says, I know how I got here, and I've, I'm learning from it, and God is using this. But then there has to be a time where you can tell your story differently, where you don't stay in despair and beat yourself up and live underneath that, where you, one tells the story of how I got here, the other tells the story of how do I live now. 
And so the other goes a little further beyond exile with a little bit more hope, and it's going, I still need to understand my story, but I need to understand it in a new way. So there's more of that arrangement that matters. I think we need to tackle a question. Yeah, I was just thinking that that's actually a pretty good segue <laughs> yeah. into uh, one of the big questions that we had come in in a couple of different ways articulated really well. Um, and I don't have time to read you the emails that got sent in, but but I, I think this question we kept hearing uh, from a number of different people boils down to this. How, how is it that God is good if we see him in the Old Testament uh, commanding the people of Israel to wipe out entire nations, peoples, children, animals? Um, how is it that God is good if he chose to give laws to regulate slavery rather than laws to abolish slavery. Um, and, and I think an answer that a lot of people that we see who are maybe deconstructing, who are going down a track that seems to be working away from the, the authority of scripture. Um, Dan told me about an interaction he had with someone in an online class he was having around this where people are finding it more convenient to simply say, well, that's just what the Israelites thought God was saying. God thought, they thought God was saying to do this. They thought God was giving these regulations. They thought, but, but that was their perception. That was their perspective. That was their truth, their belief of what God was saying. But we now know that they were wrong, um, and there's no way that God was saying those things. So what do we do with that? And if we are holding to the authority and to the truth of the scripture, and we are saying, well, God, God, God did say that, or, or, or maybe, maybe the question is, do we misunderstand? Are we reading wrong? Are we missing something? Is there something in the Hebrew that we don't know? Because uh, the question for us is always, well, what is the Bible saying? And sometimes we're wrong about what the Bible's saying. Um, but if we are going to say, well, if I understand it correctly, it says this, well, what do I do with that? So what do we do with that? <laughs> you want me to do? Yeah. Nobody wants to touch <laughs> Are you sure? Do you want it to? Uh, Faith, yeah, because yeah, I'm going to correct it. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Well, I, I think, you know, um, I'm, uh, as, as I've wrestled with this over the years, because I've definitely wrestled with it, I think anybody who spends a lot of time in Scripture occasionally comes across things that you're like, that is troubling to me. I don't know what to do with that. Um, I think in any of those situations, I'm always challenged to say, okay, what, what do I do with that? Do I shelf it? Do I try to answer it? Um, I'm, I'm, pretty, uh, I'm pretty stubborn, so I like to try to answer it whenever I can. Um, and as I tackled this question, um, I think there's two, there's two different ideas. Obviously, there's, and probably one of the two of you could speak to this a lot more. Historically, the way that slavery looked, looked especially in the New Testament paradigm, was very different than the way that we think of it um, in terms of transatlantic uh, slaves. Uh, it's, it's a very different thing. There was this sort of transactional thing that was going on a lot of times, uh, and I will let them expand on that. Um, I think... The other thing about the New Testament in particular, because you go, why, why wouldn't, in a post-Jesus world, why wouldn't they just say, like, get rid of all the slaves, just free all the slaves? And I think outside of the understanding of, okay, this might look a little bit different than our, our structure in terms of what we think of slavery, there's also the radical nature of the gospel that always strikes me. And when Paul starts to go, look, if you're a slave serve your servant, serve your master really well. Like this is, this is radical advice. This is not a, hey, get together a group of people and, and exact justice on, you know, on the slave trade and any, any of that. There is this interesting 
against the grain sort of uh, perspective that says, hey, even if you are the lowest of the low in the totem, on the totem pole, you can give glory to God in the way that you act. And even when we're talking about Paul in, in prison, all of these are opportunities in a New Testament paradigm to give radical testimony to who Jesus is. And so the, the New Testament advice for slaves to glorify God in that circumstance, to me, strikes me as that is very Jesus-like attitude um, on the opposite side. But now maybe one of the two of you can speak to the way that slavery looks. I think one of the important things to note in those household codes when it talks about slaves obey your masters, the very next verses, so I think it's Ephesians 6, I want to say 2, but I could be wrong, and Colossians 4, both of them say things along the lines of masters treat your slaves as equals with, and, give, and provide them justice, which is out of this, like just outside of the world for a slave to be given that kind of, so it's to, to say, why didn't Jesus come and abolish slavery? It's, well, actually, if you read the New Testament, this is not supporting anything other than, um, you know, totally different treatment uh, of slaves. Um, a couple other notes. Uh, one, yeah, like Ryan said, it's, we think 17th century triangle trade um, and slavery then was not resourced by kidnapping for the most part. Um, and it was more like internships, really, um, and it was a way up for people. Don't tell our interns that. Yeah, yeah. I know. It'd be like, <laughs> abolish all internships, go, but, but slaves could earn enough to buy their own freedom and things like that. So it's, it's a different institution than we think of a lot of the times. Um, I actually have a friend of mine, Sean McGeever, he's a professor at Grand Canyon. He's writing a really in-depth book on slavery, going through all of that. Um, it was in had the opportunity to be in Europe and sitting, and I was telling him, yeah, one cafe outside of Oxford says, first coffee, 1651, and the other one says, first cafe, 1651. And he's like, well, you know why there's there, right? That's when the slave trade, I was like, oh gosh, yeah, that's when those things started flowing. But um, another thing to note is Jesus goes deeper to the root of slavery. And like on one hand, it's like the gospels don't mention slavery, but think about Matthew. It starts with, uh, the slaughter of the innocents, the two-year-olds. Out of Egypt, I've called my son. Um, and it's kind of going, wait, this is like the Exodus revisited. And it, the whole thing ends with a Passover resurrection of Jesus, that Jesus at a Passover meal. And you start going, oh, wait, this is the Exodus. Ma Matthew's rewriting the Exodus narrative, but he's telling how Jesus fulfills that story um, or how he embodies that. And you go, oh my gosh, from beginning to end, this gospel is a story about liberation from slavery, but he's going to the very root to go to the source of slavery, which is spiritual, to defeat the spiritual forces that enslave people. And then he can take someone and say, hey, if a Roman soldier asked you to carry their pack a mile, take it too. So instead of just changing their circumstances, he changed how, changes how they relate to their circumstance because now they're going, I'm a free person carrying his pack. And so God can do liberation in strange places. And so anyways, I'm kind of getting off. That's of that. good. I have a little bit of a different perspective on all of this. I think that um, there were times where slavery in Scripture was really bad. Um, I look at Abraham and how um, Abraham and Sarah treated Hagar. Um, she was a slave, and she was used and then thrown away. I have issues with that. 
But what I believe about it is that God works with cultures much like he works with people. If you knew me when I was in my early years as a believer, you would not want me as your pastor. Sorry, <laughs> I'm just being honest. I had a lot of growing to do. I, I, I had things that I was doing that would not have, would not have been good. But God loved me where I was at, and he worked with me where I was at. He taught me. He changed me. But it's been a process of years of walking with the Lord where I am not the person that I was. And I think much the same can be true of cultures. God works with cultures over time, and cultures, the early cultures, did God want men to have more than one wife? I don't think so. Um, did God want them to have slavery? I don't think so. Did, there's a whole list of things that I think that God probably did not like. But God was teaching them who he was, and he knew that just if he had told me at the beginning of my Christian life, these are the ways you have to be, I would have, I would have despaired and given up because it wasn't possible for me to make those changes that fast. And I think the same can be true of society. We have ways of thinking, and it takes years for our ways of thinking to develop into the ways that God thinks. It takes me that, and I know the Lord, and I love the Lord, and it takes me years. So I think we have to accept the fact that it is going to take society time to begin with much evil and turn into if they listen to the Lord and if they allow themselves to be changed by the Lord, we will change into somebody that will live and honor um, and bring glory to the Lord. I think something that just echoes, like if you're kind of going, well, didn't God give laws for slavery then? Um, I think something that I've appreciated is the picture of Moses is on top of Mount Sinai getting the law and up there he gets, here's the ideal. This is how it should be. But, but God also goes, but I know what you guys are like, and I know what it's like at the bottom of the mountain. And so, like, one example of that would be marriage. The ideal, from the beginning, God made a male and female, and what God has put together, let no one separate. At the bottom of the mountain, I know about your hardness of heart. I want to give you a way forward. Yes, it's broken, but if I give, if you have to provide a woman a certificate of divorce, you actually give her status. So, yeah, it's a broken way forward but it's a way forward, and I know what it's like at the bottom of the mountain. So if you go and have a meeting with God on Camelback Mountain and you get the ideals, and then you come down and you go, man, life is hard. Scripture is witness to, he understands that, and there's mercy. And we kind of think law, hard, mean, whatever, and it actually gives witness to a God who understands us and works with us and goes, I'm really committed to you, and I will give you a way forward, knowing that you're going to limp broken and everything else, and I can still bring you to where I want you. 
And let's not forget on that particular subject too, uh, the Lord, it, it's, it, there's a, a really wonderful biography of uh, William Wilberforce by Eric Metaxas. Almost all of his uh, biographies are really wonderful. But uh, if, you, as you, if you read through the life of William Wilberforce, a lot of people don't even know that guy's name or who he was, but he was the man who pretty much single-handedly ended slavery as a legal situation establishment in the vast majority of the globe. And it's because one day he was having a, a time with the Lord. He was having a personal quiet time and the Lord spoke some very specific words to him and said, I'm calling you uh, to the abolition of slavery and the reformation of manners, which was to say, making society not so gross. Um, and the guy devoted his life uh, to seeing the abolition of slavery in a time when that was not popular and he had no allies. And the day before he died, he saw the last major empire abolish slavery. Um, and so that was because the Lord, so the Lord spoke to this man at a time when slavery had hit its peak disgusting perversion in, in society and in history. Uh, and it was the Lord's word that ultimately brought about the end of, of legal slavery in the world. Uh, the Lord is very patient with our wickedness. Um, and and I, I think, so to address the other part of that question, the other thing that kind of came paired with that, right, is the question of, well, how, like, how is it okay when God says, wipe these people out? Um, I'd say my perspective on that a little bit, and, and uh, this is definitely one of those questions that you just have to, you have to wrestle, because we'll lay this question out, and I don't think it means anything unless you've seen and tasted of the goodness of God, and you can trust him when you're not so comfortable with one of the answers, and I think that we could come up with a handful of different answers. For me, uh, what I tend to do with that is I think about the reality that the only reason that um, that is so hard for us to wrap our mind around is that we live in a world that is saturated, soaked with, and sustained by the mercy of God. So much so that when God chooses to withhold that mercy in any way, shape, or form, it becomes offensive to us, right? We're, we are in some ways like the kid who's so used to getting to have dessert for, for breakfast every single day that one day when mom says, ah, you need to have broccoli today, uh, it, it's offensive and it's a problem. We are so used to God saying, I'm going to be patient with your wickedness. I'm going to be merciful. I'm going to be just. I'm going to wait. I'm going to give you every opportunity that, that there are certain moments in, in, when the Lord says, I'm not going to do that today. Um, and I think of that, that the Dainu liturgy that, that we just did at the Passover that the Jews have been doing for thousands of years, you know, saying at every point in, in their history, it would have been enough, God, if you had just done this and not done the next step. And it would have been enough. But you kept going, you kept going, you kept going, you kept going. And we can say thousands of years of Dainu of it would have been enough. Mm -hmm. um, and so I think when the Lord says, look, in this particular society, I'm choosing to, to, to not hold on in my mercy, but to pour out justice today, that's, re that's really upsetting to us. Um, but I think the Lord is every bit within his right to do that because we're just, I think we have no concept for how wicked our small sins are. And so we just get desensitized. The other thing that you said, well, what about children in that situation? And I think that's a, that's a very fair question. And this is uncomfortable even to say, but I, I think... Um, if we look at, depending on your theology and what happens with kids, a lot of people would say, well, I think, I think before a certain age, someone is, you know, the, there's the age of accountability people talk about. It seems that probably, you know, maybe a child is going to end up being with the Lord in eternity. 
And in that perspective, although temporally it's disgusting to think about a child being murdered in that situation, on an eternal standpoint, a perspective that you and I do not have, that we do not understand, that we cannot really clearly see through, from an eternal perspective, well, if, well, if a child is being passed away, um, is being killed in war, um, as disgusting as that is, temporally speaking, eternally speaking, the Lord's saying, oh, this kid's going to be with me. Um, that's not enough for me, to be honest, yeah. emotionally, but intellectually, <laughs> it's, it's... I think we, we, we had a long conversation about this. So I think the best example is you take uh, Joshua and the Canaanites, right? And um, God says, I want you to wipe out the Canaanites. And I think before you dive into that, you have to take a step back and say, okay, what do I believe about God? Well, uh, do I believe that God's ways are my ways? Well, no. I, Isaiah says, my ways are not your ways. There is something that is completely other about the, about the nature of God uh, that is really hard for us to wrap our head around. So we have to go, okay, do we trust that the Lord uh, has, uh, has, do we trust that the Lord knows what he's doing more than we do. Okay, yes, I do believe that. Do I believe that God is, is merciful? Yes, I do. But do I believe that God is just? Yes. And so when you read the story in Joshua, he goes, I, I, you know, I, I need you to go in there and I need you, you to utterly destroy uh, the Canaanites. I think it's extremely important for us to understand what was going on in, in the Canaanite culture. Um, it was... To say that it was a uh, perverse and evil culture, I think, is selling it short, even in terms of the levels of depravity uh, that the Canaanites were doing. They, they were offering children to the god Molech in, this, in a, a very horrible, horrible way, burning the children alive um, as an offering to Molech. Uh, there was ritualistic sex and rape, uh, gang rape that was going on. And there was, there was not just, I mean, and you could look at any culture and you could say, oh, those things happen in every culture, right? Yeah, that's true. The difference is in the Canaanite culture, this was embedded in what they did as a society. This was a big part and this was a major part of how they operated on a governmental level and how, that they, how, they, how they acted not just in the, in the corners in the dark, but they did this out in the light. They were proud of it. This is what they did. And God, in his mercy, told the Canaanites, there is judgment coming to you. And he says that in Genesis 15. This is, is this three or 400 years? 400 years. Thank, thank God you're here, uh, Daniel. 400 years uh, before judgment actually happens in the Canaanites. So there is this Again, when we say God is slow to his anger, he is. And for the story of the Canaanites, he was very slow in his anger toward it. Um, but I do think that this story is shocking, and I think it's supposed to be. And I think for a lot of us, we go, in our, our current culture right now, it's, we're, we're very comfortable. <laughs> uh, we, for generations now, we have heard about war that's happening outside of America. We've seen some difficulties that have happened here. None of us, unless you're not from, I'll just say, most likely none of us, have experienced what it's like to have another country come and conquer you, take your children away from you, uh, destroy things that you love and care about so much. And, and we were talking about, like, why is the Old Testament so violent? Well, because 
humans are really violent. <laughs> we are at our nature very violent people. So when you look at what's going on with the Canaanites, to me, I think there is something that God is saying, unchecked sin runs rampant. And we tend to go, oh, that's like, maybe it's gross and it's kind of bad sin. No, God's going, this is something you need to be so careful of. This is dangerous. Unchecked sin cannot keep running, running amok in the world. And God's going, I, we need to stop it before it grows anymore. And I think God's, God's warning about sin and the, and the sin that had permeated the Canaanites, this story is shocking for us because we need to take a step back and say the depravity and the evil and the death of sin that eventually comes is shocking. It's shocking, and eventually it gets to this point of Canaanite level. And I think for me, this is something that, and the funny thing is, is like I, I kind of came to that conclusion early on in my walk with Jesus. And in my 20s, I was like, yeah, I am satisfied with that answer. That feels like a, yes, I, I understand that. Then I started having kids. And I remember so clearly, I was holding Toby, my son, he's little, and I was, I was reading that story. And I was like, ooh, ooh, Lord, I don't like this story again. <laughs> I thought I was over it, but now I'm wrestling with this story again. I don't like it because now I'm holding my son and I'm going, man, this, this story just feels so different. And, and I think time and time again, some of these things, they are hard because they're supposed to be hard because we're supposed to wrestle with them. But there is this thing that we can't get past, and Faith and I, and I'm sure Faith can add a lot, of, a lot of context into this too. When we talk about the judgment of God, do we really believe it? Do we really believe that God's judgment is good? And honestly, there's many times where in our current context, we go, oh man, judgment, that sounds horrible. That sounds so, so difficult. There are times in life though when you go, Lord, I want justice. I need justice. And Faith, you, you had an excellent story about that. I was asking um, the guys before we came on, I said, when you talk to me about justice, I'm not sure if what my story is, is appropriate to, to share. Do you think that this is okay? It's fine. It's just between us. There's not, nobody else in the room. Everybody. It's fine. Yeah. They said, go for it. I, I, in the past, I hadn't, in the far past, I hadn't been concerned about justice. It was, you know, okay, yeah, God's just. And then um, when I discovered some of the things that had been happening in my family, if you want to know the truth, it was like, God, why, did you, why didn't you kill him? I, I was angry with God that he didn't kill him. Why would you let that happen? And I think that one of the things that has helped me is I heard a man from, uh, oh, what's that? Youth with a Mission. YWAM. Yeah, YWAM. I'm a, I'm a fan. Anyways. He was talking and he said, we don't judge God by what we see in scripture. We judge scripture by what we know of God. 
And one of the things that I know about God is that God is love. And I know that without doubt. I have had times where my faith was just brought down to the bare minimum. And what I went back to was Jesus died for me. I know he loves me. He died for me. So when I read things like this, I believe that God is acting out of love. And it, it's a struggle to see these things as love. But if you ever come to the place where you face massive injustice, you will come also to the place where you recognize that justice is a part of love. Without justice, there is no love. It's, it's just the way it is. So I believe that God acted in love, possibly on behalf of the children. I think he acted in love because he didn't want Israel to learn the ways of the Canaanites where they, they did eventually do that and began sacrificing their own children, throwing them into the fire. But God loves the children and God is, justice is a part of love. There's, uh, there's one other question that came up in a couple different ways that I wanna make sure that we hit. Um, if you got, if Dan, if you have a burning thing that you wanna slip in on there. I think you I, can have one more perspective on it. I, I would add. Before we put the pin in <clears throat> yeah, genocide. Yeah. <laughs> one, I agree with what they're saying, that you know, justice, like if, if you get angry about nothing, you love nothing, because you know, anger is moving you to deal with an injustice, and God deals with injustice. So without a doubt, God is dealing with injustice. There is a nuance that I will just throw out there that like if you read Deuteronomy, I think it's 7-2, um, it's the command to, you know, it's usually translated utterly wipe out the Canaanites. But then the next verse says, and then when you're done, don't marry them, don't make treaties with them. And this is for those of you who have seen um, A Few Good Men, why the two orders? Why would you give an order not to marry them if you're also giving an order to utterly wipe out? And there's a certain level of, um, this is an ancient text wrote in ex ancient style um, that's performing certain functions. And even the utterly wipe out comes from the Hebrew word harem. Um, but it's, um, it, yeah, it's a, but it's a cultic word. It has to do with devoting to the band for worship, like the treasure that Joshua, you know, in AI, that um, Achan took was supposed to be devoted to the band, same exact word. Um, and so there is kind of a little bit of, huh, do we understand completely what that means? I don't doubt God was sending him in to do justice. I do suspect it was a little more surgical than the way the rhetoric reads. Because uh, as you read through Joshua, it's, we wiped him out, we wiped him out, we wiped him out. And then you read, and then this land we gave to the tribe of, and the Canaanites were there because we didn't wipe them out. And then this land we gave to the other tribe, and, the, and it's, so it's actually, it's not, you know, a discrepancy. It's doing the way ancient uh, literature worked. Um, and a, a kind of a comparative that I'll make quick is, uh, I had someone close to me go through basic training, and as they would do their marches, you know, they would, you know, do chants, I will kill, kill I will. And it was preparing them to make hard choices 
But if you looked at it from the outside, it's like, oh, they're just, this is just bloodlust. And it was like, no, it was to prepare them for what they would have to do. And there could be a function like that. So I think there's some nuance to look at it with and still hold on to, no, God's doing justice. So uh, we'll try to keep our responses to this quick, even though this is not a yeah. quick question. Uh, but maybe we can start actually with Dan. I know we just, you just finished up your thought on that. But, uh, but the other one, another one of the questions that felt really important to us that we came, uh, a couple people articulated in a couple different ways is, how do I interpret the Bible? In particular, one of the, like when people talk about, well, you know, people say a lot of the things that you say, like a lot of that kind of verbiage. And some people seem to use, oh, the context and the Greek and the Hebrew. And they seem to utilize that to effectively rob the scripture of its authority to say anything. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then some people seem to do that and, and they seem to s- still say the Bible's really authoritative. In particular, one of the questions that I think is a really fair question is, well, well what's the difference between when the New Testament is talking about, uh, you know, head coverings and these kind of things that, you know, I mean, I'm a pastor, I have long hair, that's a, you know, like that's, I mean, I'm a guy that I'm not supposed to have it's that. more maybe. than long hair. It's yeah, dreads. face yeah. hair is there all uncovered, you know, this is, so we're, you know, what's the difference between that versus, you know, when the Bible talks about homosexuality or for that matter, any discussion of morality, how do we know what still applies versus what was maybe for a specific culture, a specific time and doesn't apply and, and what do we do with that? So Dan, I wonder if you can kick us off, off with that and maybe a couple of us can succinctly throw out our two Sure. Um, so one of the first interpretive questions you ask when you're reading a text, like you're reading through Paul's epistles is especially what we're talking about here. Um, is this a normative text that everyone in all times is supposed to do or is this occasional for a specific reason? And you can start with an easy one. Second, Timothy 4, I think, is where Paul says to Timothy, hey, by the way, when you come, bring my cloak, my parchments, and my scrolls. Now, for all of the church throughout time to try and bring Paul his cloak and his scrolls would be silly. And so that, that's an easy one to be like, no, this is for an occasion. Um, then you can go to one that's a little more difficult, like, um, okay, braided hair, gold, pearls, jewelry, none of that. One response to that is, oh, that was cultural. We can set it aside. Um, another response is, no, you have to do that. I'm pretty sure I saw braided hair, pearls, and gold on Sunday here, so clearly we don't hold to that. And, um, but then you kind of go the route of what did it mean to them? And in that context, it was saying, don't dress in such a way that you advertise that you're available for a sexual relationship outside of marriage, probably for hire. And then you go, oh, that's what that meant. We can take what it meant and apply it to what it means now. Hey, women and men, don't dress in such a way that you're advertising. And so you can kind of go, all right, if I understand what it meant, it has impact in in purchase now. And one, you could set it aside too easily, like Alec was alluding to, and be like, oh, that was cultural. We don't have to listen to it. Let's listen to it in its culture so that we can understand what it's saying to us now. Then you come to homosexuality. And some people go, that was for back then. We understand differently. And um, as you look through scripture, I have a hard time finding witness to some giving a positive um, picture of what homosexuality brings. And uh, I think it falls short just as adultery, extramarital, masturbation, pornography, all those things fall short of the full vision of what God has for us. Homosexuality is part of that. It's worth, uh, just interject, I want you to finish your thought, but it's worth, it's so important to be very precise when we say terminology, right, because uh, our culture loves to change definitions. When we say that, I'd say the Bible really clearly draws a line between temptation and sin. 
Um, oftentimes when in our culture, when people say homosexuality, what they mean is what we would call temptation. Um, but, uh, but there's nothing sinful about temptation. There's something sinful about giving into it. So being attracted to someone of the same sex, uh, we don't recognize as being sinful. What you do with that in your mind and your heart and physically is, you know, when Jesus says, hey, if anybody even looks at a woman with lustful intent, he's committed adultery. That's, that seems like a fine line, and there is, and that's a really important line. But that's very different from, uh, from oh, I, I was born with a certain brokenness and a disposition to have a temptation in this particular way. Um, that's no different. Um, yeah, but, and I was going to say, too, like, even to your point when you're saying making yourself available, I think that, like, the... the equal sort of example in our culture right now is let's say you go to parties and you're a husband and you take your wedding ring off all the time. What does that mean? Well, that means you're available, right? Like Paul, if he was writing it in our time, would say, hey, don't do that. If he's sensing people are doing that, these are real cultural things that are going on. Some of them are pretty clear, like another one, greet one another with a holy kiss. <laughs> that can make for a really awkward Sunday morning if we took that seriously, you know. Um, there was in some, 2020. <laughs> yeah. There's something about it in the time that we could look back and we could go, okay, yeah. Uh, that, that was for a very specific thing in that culture. But just like Daniel was saying, what was the deeper thing that it was trying to say? Um, and honestly, I think you could look at all these and, and these are just kind of different methodologies or different things like that that Paul is talking about that are cultural. When you look at homosexuality, I have a really hard time looking that and, at that and saying, oh, it's just a method of the time. Like, it was just something kind of... Like, no, this is, this is something very, very deep um, in terms of, and even our culture would say it's deep, right? Like, they, they even say it's how you identify. They wouldn't try to downplay it as, oh, it's just a kind of thing that's happening in, the, in these days. Like, they even say it's a big deal. So I think clearly when you look at that, um, Romans 1 obviously is the kind of clearest place where in the New Testament paradigm where they talk about homosexuality. Um, but this is not for us coming from a posture of, see, we got you, and, you know, this is, this is just, again, like I was saying weeks ago, clarity is kindness in the culture that we're living in right now, and the clarity is uh, homosexuality and practicing homosexuality and anything sexual outside of the boundaries of marriage really are an affront to who we are in our identity, our Christ-given, God-given identity, um, and in the beginning, God created male and female, and the enemy is trying to hit us on very fundamental baseline uh, pieces of, of what it means to be human. And so I see homosexuality as that same thing. I don't put it in the same camp as, you know, uh, I forbid men to pray with hats on or whatever, with head covering. So, yeah. I think I cut you off before you were done, so I want to make no, sure. It, it's one of those things where it, it's a hard topic to do sound bites, like just say a little bit because, you know, I believe Jesus came and died for homosexuals. I don't believe homosexuality keeps you out of heaven. I don't think heterosexuality gets you into heaven. I mean, it's just because God wrote like 600 commands to heterosexuals and four to homosexuals doesn't mean he likes heterosexuals less. Um, there's all kinds of ways to nuance that. And it's like, Jesus, the offer is come as you are. It's, you don't change so that you can come to Jesus. You come to Jesus and see what he does. And, um, you know, I, it's funny. Someone close to me, like, first time I went mountain biking with them, they, you know, got a gift of a bike, and we went up the first hill, and they were exhausted and stopped and smoked a cigarette. 
Um, and then we went up another hill and like for the first several rides, you know, it's decades later now and that person is one of the elite mountain bikers who doesn't smoke and everything. Sometimes like God, God uses processes and he's patient. He's really patient. The way Paul says, you know, he showed mercy in me so that in me you would see his unlimited patience to those who might be saved. He's incredibly patient. It's not a get this right so you can come to me. It's a, I came to, for the sick. Um, but there's something to saying, yeah, that, that's short of what God has for us. Maybe we can wrap up with faith. Do you have something to say on that faith? I agree. <laughs> <laughs> she agrees. <laughs> Did you turn your mic off? Sorry. <laughs> I agree. Yeah. I, would, um, I would just say to that, to that core question, right, it's so easy to fall down the specific rabbit Whole rabbit trail of the question, oh, how do you eat braided hair versus uh, homosexuality? I would say, I think it's vital, like we were saying earlier on um, tonight, it's vital that we start from the assumption that the Bible is authoritative and that we desperately try to figure out what it's actually saying and that we not allow ourselves to contextualize our way out of what it's actually saying, but we allow ourselves to use context to try to understand what God is really saying. We have to begin with the assumption that this word is authoritative, um, and if it's authoritative, then there will be moments in time when it will tell me something I don't like. And if it's gonna tell me something I don't like, then I need to decide whether or not I'm gonna trust it, whether or not I'm gonna, you know, like I said on Sunday, like what, am I gonna apply the scientific method and test it and see what actually happens? Um, and I think that's really, really important, that we never get caught in contextualizing our way out of what the Bible is saying. And there will be moments in time where, where we will have believed something, where we, we, will, we will have believed that the Bible says this for my entire life. And then I'm sure that at 60, at 70 years old, I will understand, understand something a little bit deeper, a little bit more, and I will realize I was wrong. I did not understand what the Bible said. It says this, and that changes everything mm -hmm. and, that, and that happens and we could unpack some of those we could do I mean, we're not not tonight <laughs> we're, we're about done here but yeah. um but so i think when you're trying to figure out what do i do what do i discard what do i not i think you really have to look through uh through the lens of i, I think the wesleyan quadrilateral is helpful mm -hmm. uh you know looking through the lens of scripture and reason and tradition and experience and in that order with experience being the bottom mm -hmm. um I think we look at you know the, the the wealth of the entirety of what church history has said, which just because church history has always said this does not necessarily mean they're right. But if we're going against you know a few thousand years of really smart men and women who've been applying uh, the word of God and living faithfully and serving him, if, if we're disagreeing with them, we should probably be very cautious and slow to do that because more likely than not we're wrong and church history and tradition is right. Uh, but maybe. Maybe we've realized yeah. something. Yeah. Um, I think we're going to close down with some prayer, but uh, just, just real quick, as we were all chatting before we came in here, ultimately our heart for this season is this, um, that we would love the Word of God, that we, would, that we would, just like Alex says, we're not looking for translation and wiggle room to go, can I do that? And can I, f like, finagle my way into this? What our, our heart posture is, is, Lord, make it clear we want to know what you mean, and our heart is to continue to seek after the Word of God and to continue to seek after clarity in uh, these times that are not very clear. And our heart really is that as a community, we would fall deeper in love with the, with the Word of God. It's not just that it's interesting and there's history behind it, 
but it is living and active. And we could read it every single day in our life and we could gain something brand new from it. There is nothing else like that in all the world. This is an incredible gift to the people of God. And for us, we really wanted to wrestle with some of these questions, but ultimately we wanted to, to invite you into the wrestling yourself, to continue to wrestle with these things, uh, that, that, this thing that we love so much. So uh, with that being said, the, the coming weeks, we're going to be unpacking a lot of different things. So we're talking about God the Father next week. Uh, we're talking about Jesus Christ the next week, the theology of Jesus Christ. What do we believe? What are some kind of common heresies when it comes to Jesus Christ? All of this for us is deepening our roots, and hopefully as a community, we all get to do that together. Uh, so with that, let's pray, and then we'll close out the evening. Lord, we thank you for your word. Uh, we thank you that it's living and active. We thank you uh, that, God, you gave us uh, such an amazing gift. It truly is. Um, and I pray that Living Streams, that this would be a community of people that truly love your word, uh, that we don't take it for granted, that we're not looking to, to change it based on what we think or what society thinks, but genuinely and purely, Lord, that our heart motivation would be to hear from you and to catch more and more of what it means to follow you. Uh, and that we would really have a heart to, to understand more and more of your character. And Jesus, we, we, we love you. We're thank you, thankful for this church, thankful for your word. In Jesus' name, amen, amen. All right, you guys, thank you very much. Uh, we'll be sticking around in case you guys want to come chat. So thanks. <laughs>